I'm Allison. And I'm Alyssa. And this is Books Before Liquor, Never Been Sicker, where we reread the books we first read as kids and teens, again now with our adult perspectives. And sometimes with the help of that glorious adult juice we call liquor. First, we want to acknowledge the lands on which we are recording our podcast today. I'm currently recording on the unceded territories of the Coquitlam, Tsleil-Waututh, Katsi, Musqueam, Squamish, Kakite, and Stolo First Nations. And I am currently recording on the lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. And I acknowledge that the land I am on is covered by Treaty 13, signed by the Mississaugas of the Credits, and the Williams Treaty signed with the multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. Today, we are talking about a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket, or as I like to call it, a series of traumatic events and child abuse. Due to the nature of the book, we're giving a content warning because these novels are riddled with child abuse. And although we are only focusing on books one to seven in this episode, there will also be spoilers for later books in the series. So if you haven't finished the Netflix series or the book series, just be aware that yes, we will be talking about the ending. Fun story, listeners. (laughs) We're in the same place. We thought we were so excited we could record in the same room. We have been setting up for an hour and a half trying to figure out how to record in the same room and apparently the stuff we have does not work that way so now we're in two separate rooms in the same apartment (laughs) but what's exciting about that is we have the same drink today yes Alyssa, would you like to tell us what we're drinking yes so very excited very frustrated ready to drink (laughs) oh yeah we are ready today we are drinking what i have decided to call the lemony snicket which is a very simple cocktail with a gin and tonic base with a little bit of lemon juice and a lemon twist on top. And it's very strong and good. Mm -hmm. And we are drinking today out of crystal goblets from my mother's wedding crystal. Uh, (laughs) I did it. Oh, I didn't know it was her wedding crystal. (laughs) Uh, We were going through all of their random stuff in the basement, and we came across this box of wedding crystal that she never uses. And I I just, I called dibs kind of as a joke. And she was like, yeah, you can have it if you want. So I took it home. And now I have Amazing. my parents' wedding crystal at my house. So I love that. So yeah, much. so I can drink out of these crystal goblets uh, on my lonesome. But today you're here to drink with me, so it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a good time. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you want to make a prediction on how many trope shots we're going to do today? Uh, my prediction is three. Yeah, I think three is a good number. We already know of a couple we have already put in our notes that we know are gonna are coming up. But I think there's going to be at least one extra. I think so, too. And the saucier we get, the more likely we are to turn things into trope shots or meta shots. Oh, yeah. There's going to be lots of meta shots. So maybe. Oh, maybe yeah. Get more. ready. Okay. So a series of unfortunate events is an account of the experiences the Baudelaire children face, starting with the demise of their parents in a horrible fire, as told by Lemony Snicket. Violet is the oldest, a talented inventor at 14. 
Klaus is the middle child who has read more books than most adults by the age of 12, and Sunny is the youngest, a baby with a passion for biting things. They are first sent to live with a distant relative by the name of Count Olaf, and it is very apparent he is only interested in taking control of the large fortune Violet will inherit when she becomes of age. With each unfortunate event the children are faced with, they are passed from guardian to guardian, but Olaf is always there, hot on their heels, with a new despicable plan to steal their fortune. Dastardly bastard. <laughs> so um, I first heard of the series when they made the movie, the 2004 movie with Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was my first experience with this series. And I, I think I started reading them around then too, because I believe the last book came out around 2005 or six. So it would have been just a few years after that movie came out. So I started reading them, but I don't think I got beyond book six. Um, originally, I thought it was book four, but as I was reading them, I, a lot of memories started Yeah. Like, coming back of specific scenes uh, of what I did read. So I think I read up to book six, which is the uh, Erzatz Elevator. Um, I enjoyed it, but I think I got a bit bored around book five or six because like up until then, it's more or less the same plot. Um, But I did watch the Netflix series as it came out in the past few years, and I really enjoyed that one. Yes. But I think I would have given it like a seven or an eight as a kid. Yeah, I had a really similar experience to you. I think... I think maybe I read a few of the books before the movie came out, probably because there was like attention to the book series while they were making the movie, because I seem mm-hmm. to remember reading them, like buying them when they were being released. And if the last one was mm-hmm. released in like 2005 or 2006, then I must have started reading them before that to remember multiple book releases. Yeah. So I guess I started reading it before the movie maybe, but like pretty close to around then. Uh, and then watched the movie and I was like, oh, cool. Okay. And then the, (laughs) (laughs) you know, as you do. And the, (laughs) the book series, I think I got up to maybe like book eight, maybe nine. And I stopped, I think, because I just got really frustrated with the, the, the similar plot and like the, the main characters are Mm -hmm. constantly getting screwed over. And I got really annoyed by that as a kid. Uh, so I sort of gave up on them also because I was really sick of waiting for the last book to come out. I just wanted to know. Um, yeah, that's fair. And then by the time we did get the 13th book, I remember having the hardcover of it. I never actually read it because I was angry. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe I read more than I thought I did. Yeah, I think I think also why I stopped reading the series was because I must have been reading it around the time the last book came out. And, like, I think I knew a lot of people didn't really like the ending. Mm -hmm. So I kind of was like, oh, well, if it's not a good ending, I don't want to finish it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, like, those two things combined are why I stopped reading it. Yeah, that makes sense. But But now we've read the whole thing. Oh, wait, I forgot to give my child rating. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, yeah. How would you have rated it? I think I would have rated it a seven because I enjoyed it. But as I said, I think I got frustrated and stopped reading it before um, the last book came out. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we're like around on the same yeah, page. Yeah, for sure. All right, so I thought we could start with a more general discussion of the series before getting more into book-by-book mm-hmm. discussions. Uh, so first of all, I feel like we always start off with just talking about the writing, yes. the actual writing style, and all I want to say is it's brilliant. Like, it's brilliantly yes. written. Yes, 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 yes. I 100%, 1,000% agree with you. This time reading it, I was 
honestly blown away by how clever the writing Mm -hmm. is and how well the author builds the mystery, not just the sort of main what's VFD mystery, but also the mystery surrounding his persona and like how many goddamn lit references there are in these books. There's so many. Let me list about 1200 of them to you right now. (laughs) So we've got uh, Mr. Poe for Edgar Allan Poe. We've got Ah, um, Tempest references. That's right. This should be its own shot. Tempest references. Here we are. So uh, in the second book, they're literally on a boat called Prospero. Or they're going on the boat. Yeah, Yeah. I don't don't think this needs an explanation. Uh, Then in the last book, spoiler alert, by the way, um, they are literally in a storm that wrecks their boat on an island and there's a guy called Alonzo. And if you thought that wasn't blatant enough, there's also a Mrs. Caliban, an Ariel, a Ferdinand, <laughs> and a freaking Miranda Caliban. So I said that weird, yeah. Miranda Caliban. So like, I get that this is the last book, but I feel like he sort of just gave up and made every single character a really, really right. obvious reference yeah, to something. It's not subtle. It is not subtle. <laughs> um, but most kids wouldn't get the references. So it is something for mm-hmm. the adults reading. But yeah. I mean, I think that that's also kind of rad that every single character is like a reference. Right, yeah. And we also get a blatant reference to 1984 in The Miserable Mill, where there's mm-hmm. a Dr. Orwell. Dr. Orwell is an optometrist. And we also yeah. see the eye motif throughout the series. And it's constantly the big brother is watching thing. Mm-hmm. Like they feel like they're constantly being watched, very 1984. Yeah. And then so. So much Moby Dick. So much Moby Dick. We get mm-hmm. Ahab Memorial Hospital, Hurricane Herman for Herman Melville. The Queequeg is the name of the submarine. We get Ishmael mm-hmm. being the leader on the weird island society that they wash up on. I mean, we even get Melville references with Dewey being the sub-sub librarian. Oh, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. It's I'm like, okay, calm down, calm down. We understand that you really, really, really love Melville. I understand this now. And we even get a little bit more Shakespeare because there is an explicit reference to King Lear in the Carnivorous Carnival. And I'm going to stop mm-hmm. myself now because I feel like that's enough lit references for people to like yeah. take in one sitting. I mean, I, I have a few. Yes, that I please, please. My favorite one, it's not a lit reference, but it's more of a cultural mm-hmm. reference. And I feel like it's one that not as many people pick up on because it's just something I happen to know. So Isidore Duncan, which if you've read the series, you know, those are the two names of uh, names of two of the triplets, the Quagmire triplets. Um, so Isidore Duncan was a dancer and she's known as one of the founding mothers of modern dance. And she really liked these long flowy scarves, like the super long scarves. And she actually died when one of them got caught in the tire of her car when she was driving one day. So she met a very dark end, which kind of fits with the series, I felt like. Yeah, that does sound like something that Snicket would have written. Right? Yeah, Yeah, it like seems to fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's a mention of a Mr. Fagin that uh, Mr. Poe Mm -hmm, calls. mm -hmm to try and ask if he'll take the kids. Um, and Fagin is a character in Oliver Twist, yes. who takes in orphans. Uh, and then the hunchback is uh, named Hugo. Yeah, Victor yeah. Hugo, Hunchback in yep. Notre Dame. That's also a very, very, very sad book. It is not like the Disney nope. movie at all. <laughs> nope. Another book filled with many unfortunate yeah. events. Um, yeah. So, so many references. Literally everything is a reference. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I... I just love the way he wrote it. I thought it was so brilliant. And his way of like describing 
and defining words and describing phrases like is so brilliant and like in such an understandable way. Yes. And also a trope shot for author defining words. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, cheers. Here we go. Number one. That was smart. Oh. Pre-set up. <laughs> oh. You good? Yeah, I guess I, <laughs> I do more shots than you do on the show. I haven't taken a shot in so long. Like, I mean... Actually, that's not true. I did a shot of tequila for the show, but usually on this show, I shoot Baileys. Oh, yeah, true. I am almost always shooting gin, so. (sighs) Okay, that burned. I have the oven (laughs) in it this time, so that was actually quite pleasant for me. (gasps) The flavor wasn't bad, but the burn was unexpected. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Okay. All right, moving on. So um, there's a lot of really dark themes in the book, if you haven't guessed by the title. Um, and it made me think, like, especially as we were starting it, I was trying to think, like, why do we want to read such a dark and sad story about these kids? Like, yeah. And, like, and we're not tricked into it. Like, this shtick is that, like, it's very obvious it's not a happy story. It's not a happy ending. Like, he keeps warning you that's not going to end in a, it's not going to end mm-hmm. well. And, like, I feel like it leans into that weird psychology that, like, we as humans love to watch human suffering. Yeah. And it's why reality television is so popular. Yeah. And, like, why back in the old days fighting gladiators and uh like people would go watch gladiators fighting and like uh boxing is still popular now and like it's a huge theme in the hunger games trilogy as well Mm -hmm. like i feel like it's like these books are a safe place for children to like explore these dark themes and it's brought to them in like a sort of child-friendly and comedic way yeah it's very it feels like an introduction yeah it feels like an introduction to dark humor or something no i think i think you're totally right it's the reader gets to learn about darkness and loss and death and grief and abuse and like the disillusionment of growing up within the safer confines of the sort of fairy tale like book. Mm-hmm. And it does give so many warnings and there's foreshadowing for a lot of the big bad things that are going to happen. So we have time to sort of prep for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the audience knows what's coming. And I, I have to say on on that note that the warning at the beginning of the first book is such a bold move on the author's part because he genuinely Mm -hmm. risks the the parent of the child closing the book and putting it back on the shelf you know what i mean like the the first but it's also so intriguing i think that's a smart move because it's like no you don't want to read this because like the number one way to get a child to do something is to tell them exactly exactly yeah i totally agree like it it definitely piques your interest because most kids books are like once upon a time there was a beautiful Mm -hmm. princess who was perfect and she did this thing and then some horrible person messed it up for them but this book He's like, okay, let's get into the gritty realism, children. You're not going to like this. This is going to be tragic. There's no happy ending. I'm warning you ahead of time. Don't get mad at me later. Don't at me. (laughs) But it totally helps create the vibe that the series um, like evokes. And it introduces the mystery of the book in such a clever way because it's not only the mystery of who the Baudelaire parents were and what the secret society they were a part of is. It's also a mystery about who the, the author or the narrator is. It's so clever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we're talking about the narrator, mm-hmm. Lemony Snicket himself. Um, so in the past, I never really thought much about Lemony Snicket. Like it wasn't until like a few years into reading the book. Yeah. I even realized like Lemony Snicket's not a real human being. Yes. That's a pseudonym for Daniel Hadler, Daniel Hadler, Handler, Daniel Handler. I think, um, and it wasn't until, like, watching the Netflix series that I really started to think about, like, why he used a pseudonym. Yes. And, like, 
Uh, it's not just to protect his own identity or have a pen name just for the sake of it. Like, Lemony Snicket is part of the story yeah. and he becomes part of the world. Yeah, he's a even in both film adaptations, yeah, there's someone playing him. And can we just for a moment, um, Patrick Warburton's portrayal of Lemony he's Snicket so good. is so good. So I think good. it's my favorite part of the series. Like, I fully it's agree. So good. Yeah, he's incredible and i mean give me those cronk vibes in a suit walking <laughs> through the sewer Cusco's i'm here poison. for it <laughs> yeah narrate my life Cusco's poison yeah. the poison meant for oh Cusco. my god <laughs> Cusco. iconic um and i feel like we were talking about this in the narnia books yeah. how c.s lewis wrote the story as if like saying it as if someone told him these yes. stories and it distends his belief that they really happened and that they're it's a real story yeah. And I feel like I uh, making a narrator like p- and publishing it under that person's name yeah. that's writing this yes. story and then making him a part of the story makes it real like feel like this is real like this these events actually happened yeah, to these sure. actual children mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I was so like interested in his asides and his personal anecdotes throughout the story like I was super interested in Lemony Snicket this time. No, me too. I. 100% agree. It is so freaking brilliant and brilliantly mm-hmm. cla- crafted to the point where like the line between where he's a mil- merely a narrator and him becoming a true character is really hard to define. It's so blurry because it happens so slowly and so carefully. And yeah. it sort of happens over the course of the series as the kids discover more about their parents and about VFD. And I think about halfway through the series also is when we discover that Lemony Snicket was more directly involved um, with the other characters. Mm-hmm. He has a sibling who the kids get to meet. He Two siblings that they meet. Yeah, yeah. The But the, the first sibling they meet when they're in the Vile Village, which is about halfway True, through yeah. the series or a little bit before oh, yeah, halfway. Point, yeah. And also we learn that he was part of VFD, but we don't learn that until we find out what VFD is after the fourth book. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's there's a lot of mysteries that sort of get revealed to us about uh, not just the main mystery of the plot, but also the mystery of the author, which I was mm-hmm. all consumed by. I didn't give a shit about the actual plot that the orphans were facing so much mm-hmm. as I just wanted to know exactly what was going on with Lemony Snicket. I, know, I just yeah. was like, who is this man and what's up? I want to give him a hug. He seems like he needs one. I know, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, um... But I don't know, I just found him so fascinating. And the series did such Mm -hmm. a good job of integrating him in a similar way to the books. I mean, the the Netflix series. Um, They did a good job because at first you're like, oh, okay, cool. There's a quirky narrator. That's fun. He's like walking Mm -hmm. around in where the the show takes place. He seems mysterious and legit. I will listen to him. But then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden he also becomes a character. And it's it's integrated in such a brilliant way. And they both, like the the book series and the the TV series, did such a good job of incorporating the narrator in a way that felt organic, but also ramped up to the point where he became part of the narrative. Yeah, it's so good. So good. So you know that we've got to do a meta shot for the author being a character. Come on. Come on. So we're not even 10 minutes in. We need like a shot. You're ready? Okay. Oh, I'm counting. (laughs) Number Number two. two. Here we go. Yep. The lemon really cuts the gin. It does. Yeah. The lemon makes it much more bearable. Mm -hmm. Um, But on, while we're on this lemony ticket train, um, can we just the dedications? Oh my God. They're so good. I am freaking obsessed with yes. them they're so good oh, oh like, yes i will geek out about them for the rest of my life like 
My favorite ones, my top two, are To Beatrice, Darling Dearest Dead, which is the very first thing in the novel. Like, before even uh, the introduction. And then my other favorite one is My Love love for You Will Live Forever. You, however, did not. Yes. Like, so good. Oh, my God. So good. I was obsessed with them. Yeah. They're they're so brilliant. He says something sweet, and then the last few words really turn it on its head. It's it's so brilliant. Like, I think... They were absolutely my favorite part of each book as well. They're also extremely Emily Dickinson. And you know I gotta mention my main girl. I know you were gonna say (laughs) that. Gotta bring it up. Your girl, Emily. It's just very Emily, and I'm obsessed with it. It's Each one is like a tiny poem, and they're so beautiful and haunting Mm -hmm. and also mysterious. Yeah, I think Lemony was like a poet in the VFD world. I think so. He had to he be. He must yeah. have been. I mean, he was a writer. Like, that was his yeah. whole shtick. Yeah, so he would have been the run writing codes. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, but oh my god, what an interesting character. Right. And what an interesting... Oh, he's so... Like, I'll talk about this more later, but it's such a revolutionary way to write a novel like the the actual mm-hmm. form and the way that he yeah. he he sort of messes with it like there mm-hmm. yeah well I'll, I'll bring up some more points when we get to the sure. <laughs> i'm yeah. reining it back um, in. <laughs> yeah how about we start jumping into our book by book uh analysis so what we'll do is we'll do a short synopsis i tried to keep it as short as i can guys <laughs> i tried there's a lot hopefully it worked yeah um of each book and then we'll do uh some more uh specific discussions to each book as we go along so do you want to take uh the bad beginning yes book one the bad beginning after their parents perish in a fire the baudelaire children are sent to live with count olaf a distant relative whom they've never met they quickly see count olaf's true colors and his intent to steal their fortune he forces them to complete a long list of chores each day and forces them to cook dinner for his acting troupe He even forces them to participate in a play that he's staging, in which Count Olaf plays a groom and Violet plays a bride. Using their neighbors... (laughs) I couldn't not gag, I'm sorry. (laughs) Using their neighbor's library, Justice Strauss, who takes a liking to the children, they soon discover Olaf intends the marriage to be legal, putting him in charge of their fortune. But Violet escapes the marriage on a technicality at the last minute. When Count Olaf is about to be arrested, he and his troop escape, but Olaf warns the children that he will find them wherever they go. All right. Uh, <laughs> we got we got to talk about it. Let's just get out of the way yeah, now. we need to... The whole bit with the, him marrying Violet. Uh... Like, why is this a plot point? Like, it's so creepy. Even, so I looked it up. The book came out in 1999. Yeah. So, like, not nearly long enough ago for it to have been like, oh, I was a proud of it no, this time. No, Like, no, it's no. just creepy. It's creepy. And, like, there's so many underlying darkness beyond like him just marrying her for the fortune Mm -hmm. there's like especially as an adult reading it you're like oh because he has some moments of being like oh she's the pretty one and like i felt like the series kind of like lent into that a little bit of like how creepy and disturbing that is and i know the joke is that the adults are clueless but like no one is uncomfortable watching a play where a 14 year old is marrying someone much older than her and above that is her Her legal legal guardian. guardian yes yeah like people only have an issue with it once it's revealed that it's the marriage is legal like much yikes yeah (laughs) it's like oh my ah, god i hate it i'm glad i was like a one and done and it was like okay that's as yes creepy and pedophilic as we'll get yeah exactly so that was probably the biggest thing i noticed about reading this book uh this time around it is so uncomfortable that this is a genuine plot 
And okay, yeah. okay. To play devil's advocate for a second, I just let me put on my fedora. Okay, mm-hmm. now I'm ready. <laughs> Maybe yeah. the author was using child marriage as a way to demonstrate exactly how despicable Count Olaf is, but wasn't there that is a good point. wasn't there another way to do that that didn't involve a minor getting married to her abusive legal guardian? Was there not another I way to like- show his despicableness? I feel like if it was written now, it would have been something yes. else. But in 1999, like, that was the way to show how gross and creepy and despicable and, like, how much he really doesn't care about them. Yeah. Like, he's really only intent on the fortune. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like if it were written now or even, like, 10 years after it actually was, that may have been different. Yeah. But, yeah, but- <laughs> still, no matter when it was written, it's still a big No, yikes. it's a big yikes. And honestly, it's also shocking to me because this is at least the second encounter we've had with child marriage in children's literature and this is like our 11th episode right so i'm not super stoked on this theme being recurring let's end it here folks let's end it here (laughs) big yikes from me um yes also on a similar note it drove me fucking crazy when throughout the series multiple male characters commented on violet's pretty face right like i cannot with the sexualization of a literal child like she is 14 she's a minor that is a child yeah that is a child oh yeah that was not fun and it was always characters you're not supposed to like exactly which is so it's done in a way to be like oh this isn't comfy like kind of like in the book leaf how it was always characters you're not exactly that kind of sexualized yeah it was done the same way with violet but i still don't like no and so that that brings up a big question for me is is it okay if we're not supposed to like the character that the author is writing this really problematic thing or should they not be replicating that thing by writing about it at all you know what i mean it's It's sort of a gray area but i feel like it's an interesting point yeah that i think we could talk a whole episode about yeah and i want to give the author the benefit of the doubt because he crafts the characters in the plot so brilliantly that he would have had to mm-hmm. know that that was problematic, which is why I'm thinking it was done to show how despicable and nasty these characters are. But the fact that it's still happening in a kid's book is what rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, I still don't like it. But I, yeah, I get that. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. I think you're exactly right. Um, I mean, we could talk about this for so long. <laughs> but uh, I also wanted to bring up Olaf's troops. So this is the first yeah. time we get to meet them. We get a full description of each one. Uh, So when you look at the cast of characters, you just, like, line them all up in a line. Like, there's a fair amount of representation that's going Mm -hmm. on. Like, we have bodies that aren't, like, uh, don't appear to be physically able. Like, we've got the hook-handed man. uh, We've got gender non-conforming characters. Later, we have, like, some LGBTQ plus representation. But my issue with it is that none of them are in a positive light. And I guess, like, an argument can be made. Literally every adult is not presented in a positive light. Yeah, that's true. But, like... All of their, like, quirks and, like, everything that makes them them and different from a normal, straight, gendered, cisgendered, white person, uh, it's done in a joking way. Yeah. Which becomes problematic. And it's a source of comedy. Yeah. Which I was not a fan of. Yeah. At a first glance, it seems like, oh, wait, is there representation here? Excuse me? You're like, oh my gosh, what? Yeah, but then if you think about it for more than, like, five seconds, you realize that a lot of the depictions, as you said, would would be of people considered not white, not cis-heteronormative. They're portrayed negatively, or they're, like, Mm -hmm. villainous characters. And one of the things that really 
yucked me out this time was Violet even says multiple times throughout the series that the person who's described as appearing to be neither Mm -hmm. a man nor a woman scares her the most of all of the people in Olaf's troop. And that just reads as very problematic to me. And I think the reason is Violet can't categorize them into like a gendered binary. And that's what she finds scary is that this person is unknown and other and can't be categorized logically based on like the, the, the mindset that she grew up with. So it freaks her out. Yeah. The descriptions of that character and like the interactions with them were like, my least favorite yeah. of all the hench people like that one really made me really uncomfortable. yeah but yeah. what the series the what the tv series did in mm-hmm. such a good way is that yeah that sort of androgynous no- non-binary character was the one who was always making the clever social commentary like the mm-hmm. actor who played that role was just honestly like i thought brilliant was so comedic oh, like so, so deadpan Her- they're also in Stranger Things. Like yes, very yes, yes, yes. The end. And I was just like, oh my God, it's them from Stranger Things. Yes, yes, yes. I love that actor. Yeah, I think it's yeah, so Yeah, so brilliant. And just the <laughs> that character was so funny and was yeah. always looking, basically looking at the camera, saying an intelligent comment, critiquing whatever was going on mm-hmm. in like a very academic way. Like there was one point yeah. where they were talking about like, oh, the patriarchy or oh, uh, capitalism or oh, you know, uh, but if you were a Marxist or whatever, and it's like, it was very tongue in cheek and very clever. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the, the, the writers of the TV series looking sort of making, making a commentary based on um, how the character was portrayed in the books and saying, no, let's yeah. make this character who is outside of these really specific um, restricting binaries, be the one who's able to comment on it really intelligently right yeah and i thought that that was a really great way to deal with that character and i I really i really loved that character yeah overall i think the netflix series was so well done i think everyone was casted so So well well. in all their parts like incredible like performances all around i could we could do a whole episode just about the netflix series (laughs) maybe we will (laughs) one day yeah we might we'll see we will see stay tuned yeah um but let's keep going so um I guess uh, that's all we wanted to say about the first book. Any last thoughts? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure things will come up as we think of them. But that's yeah. fair. That's the thing. There's a lot of like repetitive themes because yeah. it's a series. Yeah, there's only so much to um, say about each one individually. Yeah, we don't want to keep repeating ourselves. So let's move on to book two, the reptile room. After Mister Poe, the banker in charge of the Baudelaire's affairs, brings the children to live with their uncle Monty, another family member that they have never met, who is a scientist and specializes in snakes. The Baudelaire's take a liking to him, and he announces their trip to Peru, and they begin to make plans. Uncle Monty's new assistant shows up, Stefano, but the Baudelaire's immediately recognize him as Count Olaf in disguise. Despite ignoring the Baudelaire's warnings of Stefano's true identity, Uncle Monty is wary of him, thinking he is here to steal his latest discovery, the incredibly deadly virus. Yes. <laughs> and he agrees not to let Stefano come to Peru with them. The morning of their departure, they find Uncle Monty dead in his reptile room from from what appears to be a snake bite. Mm-hmm. Defano attempts to take the children away, but Mr. Poe happens to arrive, stopping his plan and giving the children a chance to prove that the incredibly deadly viper is not deadly at all. It was a misnomer, a joke by Uncle Monty, and Stefano, who is really Count Olaf, is responsible for his death. Count Olaf escapes once again with the help of his associates, and the children are left to wonder what will become of them now. Yes. Okay. I just, I just have to say... Thank you for that lovely synopsis. And thank you. What I think the reason I like the second book so much is because it's basically a whodunit mystery by the end. 
It really is. And yeah. like Monty is very quirky and campy. And it just reminded me of the beautiful cult classic film Clue. It, it totally reminds me of that, right? Yeah. yeah. See? Oh and God, I think I that's why that. I like it. I think it might be my favorite book in the series, just plot-wise. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because it just had that vibe for me. Uh, yeah, so um, <laughs> uh, obviously a big theme in this uh, series is like the adults versus children kind of theme. Mm-hmm. And um, we got this theme in the first book, obviously, but I felt like we lent into it more, a bit more in this book. Yeah. And, like, the adults are kind of clueless, and they're very much not helpful in the series, and the Baudelaire's are left to solve their own problems. And I th- I always thought this was a very Roald Dahl theme. Yeah. Like, the Tilda yeah, and yeah, yeah. everything, like, um, but I'm noticing it in the things we've been reading. Like, there's this very big theme of, like, adults not understanding a situation, but children do. Yeah. And it's encouraging kids to, like, do something about it and, like, be critical of figures in power yeah. and not, not necessarily disrespectful, but critically like just because someone is in power doesn't mean that they are right and yeah so i feel like i said this before but it's so interesting because as kids we we're always told like listen to your parents listen to your teachers yeah. listen to like uh authority figures but all and then now they're like what why do you want to revolutionize everything what's going on yeah. it's like because all of this literature was telling us to be critical yeah of the people in power and not just take every like, take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally agree. Which I think is so interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I think that this needs to be a trope shot. I'm not trying to get us effed up, but I think it needs to be because it's such a recurring theme in, like, every single book that we've read. I feel like I need to tell everyone, we had a very large dinner before we recorded, so we have eaten quite a lot. We are hydrating. We nice oh, we're hydrating we're with our aqueous martinis. Aqueous martinis. Um, which, <laughs> if you've read the six it, Yeah, if you've read the Airsats Elevator, you will know it's a martini that consists of water. So I refuse to put an olive in it because I hate olives, so it's just water. You know, what's interesting is I hated olives up until three weeks ago, and then I started liking them randomly. <gasps> and I Traitor. No, I don't know why. And I think it's just because the ones I had were, like, suspended in this, like, spicy, sweet honey oil, and it was delicious. Oh, okay. All right. Olives are something, like, every now and then I try an olive to be like, oh, maybe I'll like them. Yeah. And I'm just like, nope. No, okay, every nope. T- that was me, like, once a year I would try an olive on a charcuterie board or something. And then yeah. this year, all of a sudden, I was like, wait, do I like olives now? And my dad, he looked over at me with his glass of wine, and he was like, do you like olives now? And I ate another one, and I was like, I think I like olives now, dad. And he was like, that's my girl. So, <laughs> so does this mean we're, we're we're officially soulmates because uh with the olive yes. theory <laughs> i don't like them but you do yes okay we're, it's official. we're official soulmates now right. okay we're, the wedding invitations will be sent out shortly <laughs> <laughs> okay uh ba- back to your point yes i think that this seems to be a recurring theme in a lot of kids and teens books that we've read so far excluding narnia which was just like listen to the bible and your parents um yep. where the author is encouraging the kids to question authority and it is so interesting to me because I didn't pick up on that as a kid. I mean, it okay. probably influenced my thinking at the time on like a subliminal level, but mm-hmm. I didn't notice it explicitly or overtly like I did as an adult. Um but it is such an important lesson to teach to kids to think critically and question authority, especially yeah. if the authority is telling them something that they believe is not right. But, Mm -hmm. and yet I'm always shocked when kids authors actually write that in, especially when it's like a cis, straight, white dude author. And I'm like, oh, you're telling children to question authority? Good for you. Okay, let's, yeah, let's let's question everybody. 
Yeah. Um, okay. I, ha- I have a thought. Can we just talk for a second about how much of an utter delight Monty is? He is a delight. He may be eccentric. He he may not have listened to the kids about Stefano being Olaf, but he was suspicious of Stefano, which is more than I can say for the other guardians. Mm-hmm, and yeah. out of all of the guardly- guardians that the Baudelaire's had, he is clearly the best. Oh, yeah. Well, hands down. Hands down, he's the he best. He was the one that kind of, like, most respected uh, their different talents and their different interests. Yes, interests, and he treated and, like, them like people, for not them. like yeah. children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and, like, granted, yes, he's eccentric and weird, but he he kind of, loved them. And the them. Baudelaire's liked them. Was Yeah, yeah they, there was a mutual, like, very much respect yeah. and understanding between all of them, so you could tell the Baudelaire's liked being in this camp. Exactly, and he was the only guardian of theirs that they actually, I think, respected as an authority figure. So mm-hmm. it was so heartbreaking because he's basically the first one mm-hmm. to be murdered by Olaf, like, on screen. Right. On screen, at least. I mean, he has murdered other people, presumably. No. Uh, but, so, R.I.P. Monty. We should take a drink for him. Uh, cheers me. Cheers Blink. to you, Uncle Monty. Montgomery Montgomery. Also that. Also his name. Yeah. <laughs> There's a politician uh, in Toronto whose name, it's like Brad Bradford or something like that. And like, he literally made a video with his mom explaining why his name is Brad Bradford. It was something to do with like, when he was born, like she was married to someone and like they, when they divorced, like she took her and all the kids took her maiden name back. Right. So then she was like, put him in a weird position. Yeah. He became Brad Bradford. So he wasn't born like that. They didn't intentionally do that to him. But yeah, yeah, I think it's so anyways. Funny. Yeah, I just, I just really, I was like, he could have named that character anything, but the fact that it's Montgomery, Montgomery is very good to me. Very good. Oh, excellent. Again, with the humor, just so great. Yeah. <laughs> and then, okay, for the second book in the series, the author also cranks that darkness dial up because the kids are essentially taken hostage by Olaf as Stefano, uh, who threatens mm-hmm. them and their guardian with a large knife, and he's living with them, holding them hostage. It's so yeah. dark. They're in a hostage situation for an extended period of time, and then their guardian gets murdered, and mm-hmm. he like directs them to find the body. It's so right? fucked up. Oh, it's so messed and up, yeah. I'm surprised that the kids are theoretically mentally okay. Like, that... Yeah, there's no uh, evidence that suggests they are suffering from severe trauma. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the most unrealistic things about the series to me, is that other than, like, ridiculous hijinks aside, they seem to mm-hmm. be pretty much mentally healthy the whole time. And you'd think that they would suffer some from severe uh ptsd or trauma or something and from like all of this bullshit that's going on in their lives and yeah maybe they have like a little bit but it's not a lot and it's not explicit i heard someone i I believe it was a therapist on tiktok or something said uh it's not so much when it comes to trauma it's not so much about what happened to you but about the support you Mm -hmm, had so mm -hmm. At least the Baudelaire's always have each other. Like, there's That's never true. a moment where they turn on each other and not support each other. And ha- they know all three of them are, like, going through the exact same yeah. thing. So maybe that's a big thing of how they come out of this. Totally. Is that um, they were always there for each other and they all knew they were all feeling the same things and going through the same thing. Yeah, and I think that that's why their uh, friendship with the Quagmire triplets is so important because they experienced pretty much the same things as the Baudelaire kids. So they're like, wow, Mm -hmm. 
oh my gosh, more sort of support for us, more people who actually understand what we're going through. We can relate to each other and talk about yeah. our shared trauma together. So I think the, uh, well, we can, we can, we can talk about the, the Quakewires more when we get to that book, but oh, I think, yeah. I think, it, I really, that, I think you're right <laughs> that because they had each other as siblings and also these friends that they made along the way to sort of commiserate, mm-hmm. but still it's yeah. like, okay, Get these kids in therapy. They probably need it. Come on. <laughs> Please get them a therapist. Yeah. Dear God, get a therapist. If you're out there and you're listening, get a therapist. It's good. It's everyone get everybody a get a therapist. Okay. Therapy. It's very good. It's, it's very good. <laughs> that was the PSA of the day. <laughs> Great. We will get off our soapbox now and move on to book three. Take it away. Book three, the wide window. The Budler children are brought to live with their Aunt Josephine, who lives on the top of a hill overlooking Lake Lacrimose. She's an expert in grammar of the English language and terrified of almost everything. The lake, the stove, doorknobs, and the telephone. On a visit to town, they meet Captain Sham. Aunt Josephine takes a liking to him, but the children immediately recognize him as Count Olaf in disguise. After he calls the house, they find Aunt Josephine, After he calls the house, they find Aunt Josephine has jumped out the window and into the lake and left a farewell letter. She leaves the children in Captain Sham's charge to the charge-in of the orphans, and Mr. Poe arrives to settle the deal. The children discover Aunt Josephine's note is riddled with grammatical errors and decode the message she left for them. She's alive, and she's in Curdled Cave. The children brave a storm to find her, but they're attacked by the deadly leeches in the lake. Captain Sham rescues the children, but shoves Aunt Josephine into the lake and the leeches. When they arrive back on land, they reveal Captain Sham's true identity to Mr. Poe, and Count Olaf once again escapes with the help of his associates. Big shock. Yeah. (laughs) And the cycle continues. And here we go again. Uh, so in this book, um, there's a point where Violet is, like, given a doll. Like, all the kids are given a gift by Aunt Josephine, and, like, Violet's given a go- doll. And um, it, like, really made me think of gender norms yeah. represented in these books. Because um, on one hand, like, of our three leads, two are female, and both have interests and hobbies that aren't usually associated with girls. Yes. Especially concerning this. These were books published between 1999 and 2006. Yes. Yeah. And, um, like, Violet is an inventor. Sunny likes to bite and chew things. Uh, even, like, Klaus isn't, like, a sporty kid. Yep. Like, he's not, like, a dash type. He likes to read yep. and is very smart. He's the Greg of um, the family. <laughs> maybe smarter than Greg. Yeah, definitely smarter <laughs> than Greg. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, like, it's even addressed when Mr. Poe says things like, oh, Violet, nice girls don't do things like oh this. Oh, my God. And it, like, kind of made me think of Hermione. Like, we have this female protagonist in the late 90s, early 2000s, who, like, wasn't ashamed to be smart. And, um, like, and that's, like, such a great role model, and especially for us growing up to have, that, like, it's okay to be smart. Like, celebrate the fact that you like knowledge and have uh, whatever your talents are. Like, celebrate that, no matter what they are. But on the other hand, like, I mentioned several times that, like, Violet and Sunny don't like pink dolls and, like... It is kind of like it's like not okay to like girly things, like I don't know. It's because I felt like for a lot of my teenage years in particular, like I felt I kind of shunned girly yeah. things like sparkles and pink and like makeup and dresses because I didn't want to be perceived as girly because I thought that was a bad thing. Yeah, and it's this weird balance of like, like what I'm trying to say, I guess, is like gender norms are made up. Anyone can like whatever activities, colors, hobbies they want. Yeah, like, it doesn't matter. You're not. Uh, like 
doesn't who cares yes you like pink and inventing things that's fine if you don't that's fine too preach yes i was so the same way as you i did not want to do anything that was too girly at Mm -hmm. that age because i felt like society was pressuring me to act and look a certain way and i actively resisted that and you know what i say to that fuck the patriarchy say it with me kids fuck the patriarchy one more time kids fuck the patriarchy patriarchy okay and that is our feminist rant of the day thank you (laughs) thank you (laughs) um another thing that i really thought of was uh so with aunt josephine like she's such an interesting Mm -hmm. character and i always think of meryl streep in the movie yes oh my god so good and even the woman i forget who plays her in the series but like she even like excellent job um but, and, like, she's supposed to be this, like, comical character who's afraid of everything and tries to protect herself and children from all the dangers she sees in the world. But in trying to protect them, she brings more harm to them. Like, she doesn't turn the heat on, yep. so they're cold. She doesn't feed them properly because she won't turn the stove on, yep. so they only, like, cucumber soup. Uh, she's uh, not feeding their interests and letting them explore the world and, like, make their mistakes yeah. and get hurt because, like, you kind of have to do that to grow up and learn. Um, and it brings this question of, like, how much protection just causes more harm. Yeah. And, like, this comes up again later in the series as the Baudelaire's learn more about VFD and their parents. Um, they realize their parents, like, was hiding all this information from them. Yes. That probably caused more harm than it protected them. What a Dumbledore like, move, getting some big D energy here. Right? Because, like, obviously their parents wouldn't, couldn't have known that they were going to die in a fire and their children would be left alone in the world and have to deal with all this. Uh, but, like, knowing about VFD and all that would have helped them a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> especially time. But, like, how would they t- were they to know that? And they thought they were protecting their kids. So it's, like, and, like, the leader on the island in the final book, like, protects the islanders mm-hmm. from the dangers of the world, but, like, potentially kills them all by not sharing the truth with them. I think that's, a, yeah, a very interesting conversation to be had. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's it's almost, I think it's pointing out the hypocrisy of adults because they forget that they once were kids. And mm-hmm. I think what is great about these books is that they they treat the kids reading it and the kids in the book as like autonomous beings with their own opinions and beliefs you know they're not Mm -hmm. just kids they're actual human beings you know and they're like it's it's giving the reader a lot of responsibility but also a, a lot of authority because like the the author is letting the the reader um like interpret it how they will the reader's given a lot of authority we're not always told everything that we should be taking from it we're sort of left to to gather it and josephine is such a good example of an adult who should be a good role model but turns out not to be because as Mm -hmm. you said she's overprotective right but the kids are able to recognize it's not just, oh, she's being shitty. I don't understand why. They're like, oh, clearly she had some experiences in her life that made her this way. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting that they are able to separate yeah. them. Like, she didn't mean harm. She was trying to protect us. Exactly. Like, even though she didn't really, yeah. And that's a high level of reasoning and logic for mm-hmm. uh, some kids to have, but it's... Yeah, 14, year old, 12, and one-year-old, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But it, it is interesting that these kids are very, on some level, very gracious in accepting the failings of adults but on another level the whole book is about being disillusioned with adults being shitty so Mm -hmm. we're getting a bit of a yeah yeah. i mean (laughs) yeah okay and also 
Uh, yeah, so as I said, the whole series is teaching kids that adults can be shitty and wrong sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. But there, there isn't really a single perfect or even close to perfect role model for the kids in the entire series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even their guardians or VFD members, agents have at least one major flaw that prevents them from being able to adequately care for the children mm-hmm. or even like believe them when they try to explain what's going on. Like, oh, Count Olaf is in disguise again. Why don't you believe me? Yeah. And it's so eternally frustrating, but that's sort of what it feels like to be a kid because your kid logic does not mesh with adult logic. They just don't go together. There's yeah. like a bit of a disconnect. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this book also really cranks the darkness up a notch again. It's like we're cranking it past 10 here. <laughs> like we're going deep because <laughs> the big mystery of this book is literally decoding a freaking suicide note left by Josephine. Fair. That's really fucking yeah. dark. And he definitely amps up the darkness. It with does. Book. And yeah. I guess that's teaching the kids to be skeptical of print. But come on, the fact that the main issue of this book is josephine's apparent suicide is really troubling to me oh yeah it's very very dark like very dark and it turns out she's not dead only for olaf to murder her in front of them by Mm -hmm. leeches that was the one that made me the most squeamish out of every single murder that takes place in the series that was the one that eked me out the most yeah and i think it's because the the movie scarred me as a as a child because those oh, maybe, leeches yeah. were so repulsive and it was just a horrifying sequence in the movie when they're being yeah, chased by the leeches and it really eked me out as a kid so as an adult rereading it i was like <laughs> my yeah. gag reflex was already like Whoa. fair you know oh yeah i mean we've also uh we we all know that you did not like dark stuff as kids and so the creepy crawlies not especially not the creepy crawlies <laughs> Oh, true. <laughs> Fuck you, Charlotte, from, from <laughs> Charlotte's Web. <laughs> Sorry. Moving right along. Let's go on to book four. Uh, so book four, The Miserable Mill. Now the children are sent to live at Lucky Smell's Lumber Mill. Immediately, they are put to work debarking trees with only gum for lunch and coupons as paychecks under the new foreman, Flacutono. Their new guardian, Sir, is not very pleasant, but they take a liking to his partner, Charles. When Flacutono trips Klaus, causing his glasses to break, he is sent to the optometrist, Dr. Orwell. He comes back acting very odd and nearly causes an accident the next day. After the accident, he comes out of his trance not remembering what happened since he broke his glasses. Flacutono once again trips Klaus, breaking his glasses, and is sent back to the optometrist, but Violet and Sunny accompany him this time. They discover Count Olaf has disguised himself as Shirley, the receptionist, and Klaus is being hypnotized. Sir warns the children that if they cause another accident, they will be sent to live with Shirley. Violet uses Charles's library to research hypnotism and discovers that a command word exists to unhypnotize someone. She returns to the mill to find Klaus using the machine saw, with Shirley and Dr. Orwell present and Charles strapped to a log. Violet realizes the command word just in time, inordinate, and they realize... They release Charles and attempt to fight off Shirley and Dr. Orwell, but Dr. Orwell accidentally steps in the line of the saw and dies. Once again, Count Olaf escapes with the help of his associates. Okay, anyone else think of Zoolander with this Absolutely. one? Absolutely. 
thank you. Yes, a hundred percent. I haven't seen that movie in like over a decade. Oh my but, god, like, rewatch it, rewatch it, please. It's, oh, I need. It's to. so good as an adult. Rewatch. Oh, I think I have it at my parents' house. I should watch rewatch it. Well, oh, it's so good. Oh. My brothers and I introduced yeah. my dad to Zoolander for the first time a couple years ago because he'd never seen it, and he was yeah. like losing his mind. We definitely watched that film when we were like two. Yeah, young. I watched it at film, your house like, because you guys had it on VHS when we were like I think quite Lindsay, young. Because I think Lindsay was kind of like 14, 15. Yeah. It's my older sister. Um, and so we would have been like 11 or 12 at that time. And so like a little too young, but we're fine. I mean, most of the innuendos we didn't catch anyway. It was just goofy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, anyways, back to serious and fortune events. Uh, not Zoolander. Um, but I so, want to talk about Zoolander. <laughs> you know what? We can talk about Zoolander once we're done recording. <laughs> That's not what the people are here for. Um, okay, so we do get, or do we get some uh, LGBTQ plus representation? I have novel? a lot of thoughts say, on this. Yes. Because, like, Charles refers to Sir only as his partner and never specifies whether he means in a romantic way or in a professional way. And because it's not specified, I'm going to assume, like, it was intended to be romantic, but it's said it's left very vague to kind of be, like, left up to you. Because we have to remember this was published in the early 2000s when, like, there would have been a lot of parents that would not have been comfortable knowing that this was in a book that their children were reading. Uh, Whereas, like, again, published today would be a very different story. Um, So I think that was left vague on purpose. So I'm going to assume it means romantic. Absolutely. Um, and there's uh, evidence later on in the series that um, makes us think romantic. Yep. But, like, the relationship is, like, problematic, yep. to say mm-hmm, the least. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's this weird, there's this power dynamic, and Sir has all the power in the relationship, and Charles is just meant to agree and follows his wishes and keeps the house and makes some food. And, like, it's weird, because I'm like, is this an allegory to the marriage dynamic of the past, where the man holds all the power and the woman don't, yeah. and they're just expected to support their husband? But then, like, why choose to make it a gay couple? And, like, is it that that power imbalance more obvious when it's displayed by two men, like, who are perceived as equal in society? So is that more, like, but, like... Yeah. Is it just, like, uh, demonstrating, like, or is the demonstration these harmful power dynamics in the relationship aren't, like, what am I saying? Oh, my God. (laughs) Like... Like, why make it an allegory? Like, why not just make it a heterosexual relationship? That's what you're trying to say. I it, yeah, it's just like strange that like one of the few LGBTQ plus relationships we get is like not a healthy one. Yeah, yeah. I have so much to say about this. I agree. Mm-hmm. It is not super explicit that Sir and Charles are romantic partners in this particular book, but it becomes mm-hmm. at least to me way more explicit in the penultimate peril when one of the kids yeah. sees them in the hotel in the same room in robes, Mm -hmm. in a hotel suite with one bed, on vacation, together. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, they're they're naked together with one bed in one room. (laughs) They're partners. (laughs) Um, Do we need to explain further? And, I mean, it gets a lot clearer, which I'm glad of, but the problem, other than the power imbalance, which you explained, is that it's not spelled out for kids who probably wouldn't pick up on this like we did as adults. And I definitely didn't pick up on that as a kid either. The TV show did a good job of making 
like a meta commentary on the novel where Charles basically mm-hmm. does everything except wink directly at the yeah. camera every time he says partner. And it is so fucking obvious because of the way that the show is that when whenever he says partner, it's 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 very obvious that he means romantic it's partner. Like it's very, means, very yeah. clear in the series. Yeah. Um and I think because it's a visual medium, we're able to see their interactions more and also we get those tongue in cheek moments where it's like mm-hmm. looks at the camera <laughs> it continues with the line, you know, if what, you I know mean? what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Um so it's very, very clear that they're romantic partners in the series, which I thought was better because at least then kids also are realizing that it's not just the adults reading it who are like, oh yeah, they're yeah. banging. So they're in love. <laughs> it's beautiful. So anyways, um, another brief foray into representation question mark is Olaf in drag. I think this is the only time that he presents as a woman for most of the book. At the very last one, he tries to oh, be Kit yeah, Snicket. Yeah, but that's, like, very short-lived, and nobody believes him for the first yeah, time ever. Yeah, no one yeah. buys it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, it is interesting to me that they're introducing, like, essentially this character in s- s- theoretically convincing drag, but the kids can clearly see through it. And yeah. I don't know, it just it just felt interesting to me, um, because it didn't condemn him for dressing as a woman per se which yeah, at the no time i'm like, kind of surprised yeah, yeah nobody was super shocked or weirded out by it which i thought was really great mm-hmm. um but it also was just sort of weird because he just was like yeah i'm gonna be a woman this time and then it didn't work out so he just didn't do it again but i don't know it's just yeah. like i thought that was interesting and yeah i didn't know how to feel about it yeah, yeah it was like i mean the the series when when neil patrick harris was in drag i was like oh yeah very headwig in the angry inch like We've oh, seen we've seen that, him like, do oh. drag before, and it's beautiful. It's everything, <laughs> but in the books, that? it's a bit more ambiguous. Yeah, I didn't know how to feel about uh, the drag because yeah. like it could have been done in a very like man and woman's clothes. Yeah, but what? it wasn't making fun but of it's it. It's not. Yeah, yeah. It's, which is interesting considering like looking at how all of the other characters are represented. Yeah. Like it's very strange that that was the one that wasn't weird. Exactly, and not done in a joking manner. And that's yeah. what makes me wonder why this book in particular chose to have two gay characters and have Olaf and Drag in the same book. It felt yeah, sort of oh, like a, a gay point. awakening for the author almost. <laughs> Not to like psychoanalyze him. First, uh, gay bar yeah, and he was like, this is lit. I'm going to write it into <laughs> my book. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so another big theme in this novel is I... Uh, workers rights it's kind of like there's this ongoing theme of injustice in this series Mm -hmm. and so this book really focuses on the violations on workers rights so we have like a group of workers that are worked impossible hours doing physical physically demanding jobs and they're given gum for lunch and are paid coupons i love the moment where like phil's reading a book and he's like wait this is illegal yeah (laughs) and then the boilers are like no shit (laughs) no but i think that is also a valuable lesson to be teaching to kids because there are so mm-hmm. many teenagers who get taken advantage of in the workplace because they don't know that what they're doing, yeah. like their employers are taking advantage of them and they genuinely don't know. Mm-hmm. Like my first retail job that I had, my employers were breaking multiple laws in the ways that they were employing oh, yeah, me. Like they would, they would give yeah. me two hour long shifts, which is illegal. Oh yeah. Um, so that they couldn't give me a break or they'd stagger 
they'd split my shift so that I didn't get a break, but I was working for too many hours to legally not have had one. Or they would schedule me for late into the evening and then early in the morning, but they wouldn't give me overtime. Mm. And anyway, stuff like that. But it's it's so important to teach kids that it's unacceptable to be treated that way in the workplace because there are so right, many people yeah. who are Violet's age who go into the workforce and are mm-hmm. taken advantage of so grossly because they think... Because they don't know Yeah, better, they don't yeah. know any better. So it's important for people to tell them what's acceptable and what's not, right? Yeah, so it exactly. is it is a good message to teach to kids. And also just, yes, Marxist revolution. I am here for it. Right? Here for it. We love a good we Marxist love revolution. love a good Marxist revolution. But also, can we talk for a second about how the mill is literally using mind control? It's a cult. A oh, legit yeah. cult. A brainwashing cult. That is wild. More on cults in the next episode. Absolutely. But just, oh, just yeah. the fact that this is a literal cult. And they just stumble into it and they're like, this doesn't seem right. And then they sort of break everybody out of the brainwashing. And then it, yeah. it's all fine. But like, it's a cult. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> brainwashing. Yeah, it was our brief foray into like science fiction in this series. And then we like go right? yeah, from a hard left kinda... to like a hard right because we go to the academy. That's <laughs> true, yeah. Okay, so book five, The Austere Academy. Due to the unfortunate events surrounding them, not many people are willing to take in the Baudelaire's. They are sent to a boarding school where they are forced to live in a grimy old shack filled with crabs. They must follow strict rules, they have no weekends or breaks, and Sonny must work as a receptionist. At the school, they are taunted by the horrible Carmelina Spatz, but they make friends with Isadora and Duncan Quagmire, who are triplets that lost their parents and their brother, Quigley, in a fire, much like the Baudelaire's. Count Olaf arrives, this time as a gym teacher named Coach Genghis. The Baudelaire's pretend not to recognize Olaf to try and discover his plan for the first time. Coach Genghis forces the Baudelaire's to run laps every night, and they soon fall behind in their schoolwork. While the Baudelaire's run, Isadora and Duncan keep watch on them to do some research and to try and discover Coach Genghis's plan. While the Baudelaire's begin to fail, they are faced with one final test to decide if they will be expelled or not. Isadora and Duncan pretend to be Violet, Klaus, and Sunny to run laps while the real Violet and Klaus study for their test. They pass the test, but notice the Quagmires are gone. After revealing that Coach Genghis's true identity is Count Olaf, he escapes with his accomplices and the kidnapped Isadora and Duncan. The triplets yell out the letters VFD to the Baudelaire's, trying to give them a hint toward Count Olaf's true evil plan. Another like element of the dark humor is the ongoing debate on if the Quagmires are twins or triplets because yes. one died. Yeah, it like it's such an interesting thought. Yeah. Like, yeah, if there's triplets and one dies, are you twins now or are you triplets? Exactly, and it's so, it's so dark. And I had this thought too. And mm-hmm. like all of the adults are trying to use logic without emotion, and they're saying no, obviously they're, they're twins now. Yeah, but that doesn't make sense. Of course, they're still triplets. Yeah, because I, I, like, if in a real situation, I would leave it up to the triplets in question mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. if they would rather be called triplets. Because at that age, like, they know their brother. They remember him. They have memories exactly, of him. They yeah. know who he was. So, like, no, he's still, he, like, he existed, and we don't want to erase his memory. Yeah. Whereas, like, if, like, Quigley had been a stillborn, they might feel very differently about that and been like, well, we didn't know him. Yeah. The, it's always been us. Yeah, exactly. The fact yeah. that Quigley only died, like, less than a year before the events in this book take place Mm -hmm. yeah and 
it, it's just it's so so unexpectedly dark because we're at this point right. in the series we're used to adults dying we're not used to children dying yet yeah that's yeah he's the first yeah child he's the first dies, child right? to spoiler alert nudge nudge wink wink die uh <laughs> die. <laughs> he's alive um <laughs> but it's, it's okay i said spoiler alert it's fine so <laughs> yeah we already gave a very big blanket spoiler yeah. alert. we all know <laughs> yeah but you're right it is interesting yeah all right so my question is this a commentary on failed pedagogy because like all the teachers are arguably not good mm-hmm. teachers like so we've got vice principal nero who clearly hates children yes. and does not want to be there and like violet's teacher just tells stories that are not engaging to the students and like don't seem to have any kind of uh connection to what they're supposed to be learning class teacher like just has the measure items they don't with the metric else. system specifically which i find right? interesting i know yeah <laughs> um but, like, there doesn't appear to be any kind of, like, curriculum that mm-hmm. they follow. And so we grew up in this public school system where there is a curriculum that must be followed. And, like, that does change within districts and provinces or states yeah. and countries. And, like, I'm not familiar with the private school curriculums, but my understanding is, like, they kind of have their own curriculum. That's the benefit of being a private school is you don't have to follow the public school curriculum. And I, so, like, the expectation set between schools is very different And, um, but like, no matter what kind of school you went to, like, or where you went to school, like almost everyone can name a teacher they had that was not a good teacher for whatever reason. Like they're outdated or old fashioned with their methods, like clearly did not like their job or care about their job, like weren't engaging to their students. And like, I think it's such an interesting, like so many kids just like, don't like their teachers. Yeah. I think it's so like, it was an interesting commentary on yeah schools and teachers in general yeah Yeah, especially because everything that we're told as children is listen to your teachers and listen to your parents Mm -hmm. but oh my god could we ever talk (laughs) about horrible weird strange teachers from our youth wild stories wild stories i I do i do like teachers my mom is a teacher so i do like teachers yeah i respect teachers but there are bad teachers i have a a profound respect for the teaching profession but they need yeah. to have higher standards. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's an important job. And that yes. element of, like, how important it is to teach yeah. the children of our world to read and write yeah. and be human beings yeah. is not given the weight it needs. Yeah. I, I do think you're totally right that this seems to be a commentary on education and pedagogy. And within the... Yeah, like, okay, so we're circling back around to the moral of being skeptical of adults and skeptical of authority mm-hmm. by questioning our teachers and the types of information that they're teaching us. And if that information is uh, valid or not, or if it's useful or not, it's okay for us to be questioning these things as long as we're being respectful to a certain point. Um, mm-hmm. But because the school, we only see the kids in this particular school throughout the entire series. Otherwise, they have nothing to do with education. They're never put in school. Yeah, that's true. For, like, an entire year. Um, Mm -hmm. And we only get this one specific instance and commentary on education, which is very negative, which I find interesting because it's the only instance where they're even near an institutional, like, an educational institution. Yeah, you could almost argue, like, it almost seems like they were homeschooled by their parents. Well, exactly, because they keep referencing, or parents had us read these things, and they were teaching us these things. I think think Mm -hmm. there is an argument to be made for the fact that they were probably homeschooled. Yeah, Yeah. and I'm sure, like, it sounds like their parents were were doing a good job. Yeah, they were certainly well-read. Yes, that is for sure. Yeah. 
Um, so I want to talk about, so I, I don't remember Carmelia Spatz from when I first read the book, but like, I certainly mm-hmm. remember her from the series. Cause like the kid who plays her is so, yeah. she's so <laughs> yeah. funny in that role, role, like iconic. Uh, and like, she makes Carmelita annoying in like a very comical way. And same with Esme played by, um, oh, I literally just looked up her name, Lucy something. Oh yeah. She yeah, plays yeah. like the evil yeah. stepsister in like every single. Yeah. 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 Oh, she's an Ella enchanted, right? Yeah, she plays like the evil oh, stepsister iconic. in I can film. remember her character. I can't like, remember four her times. name. Right, it's Lucy something. I forget her last name. Um, she's amazing though, and like y- watching it, you like their characters. Yeah. Watching the series because they're so good and they're so funny in their characters. Yeah. But then, like reading the book, they're not likable par- characters. Like I hated Esme and Carmelita in the books because they're so frustrating and annoying and like. Uh, like their heads are right up their asses but like in the series they're so well done and like I think it's um I think this happens so much like an actor does such a good job at playing a role that you start to like the character Mm -hmm. um it's similar to like Snape and Malfoy and Bellatrix and Harry Potter like in the books none of those characters are like no you you hate hate them yeah but the actors that played each role like did such a good job playing those roles that you can't help but love them I think that's so interesting yeah, totally. Yeah. I think but, yeah. I think that's so true. And that's why I wasn't cursing every time Olaf came on screen in the series is because mm-hmm. Neil Patrick Harris is a joy to behold. He is it's it's so hard to hate a character when the actor who plays them plays them so well and also right, when he's yeah. just a, such a wholesome human being. And Olaf in the novels. I heard stories apparently that I don't know if I believe them. Neil Patrick Harris apparently is not a nice human. Oh, being, okay. Well, okay. He seems to be a nice human being. I have never yeah. met him personally, so I cannot say That's for sure. Fair. But I mean, Olaf in the novels is just entirely vile and horrible. But you know, Patrick Harris plays him so well and brought out so much comedy in the role that it was really hard to dislike mm-hmm. him because he played him very funny and very campy. Yeah, both Jim Carrey and Patrick Harris did that. I felt like, because I remember reading something that when they turned Oliver Twist into a musical, I can't believe, I forget the guy who originally played played Fagin, but uh, he, so Fagin in the books, again, not a good character, quite a horrific character. Like, he literally abuses and uses these children to, like, commit all these crimes. Um, And so in the musical the guy who was playing him was like, how am I going to play this awful human yeah. being? So he was like, I'll make him funny. Yes. So at least there's like a bit of like ability to him. And I think that's exactly what uh, both Jim Carrey and Neil Patrick Harris did with the, that role. Yeah, for sure. Cause like, I, I'm going to talk about this later, but like Olaf is quite sinister mm-hmm. in the books. Mm-hmm. Like he, there's not many comedic moments. He's genuinely him. terrible. Yeah. He's and terrifying. Um, but in the movies, he's quite funny. And I think that's done because, like, to, ma- like, give some kind of, like, ability to him and, yeah. like, enjoyable. Yeah. Like, make him a little more enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I, th- I think you're so right because we- we've been talking about this, too, that there's such a-, a resurgence now of, like, villains, movies about villains, villains being the center of books and movies and TV. They're so fascinating. Mm -hmm. The actors who portray them are so brilliant. Let's give them depth. Let's question Mm -hmm. their motives. Let's question how society treated them to make them this way. It's all about the psychology, you know? And it's interesting and perhaps valuable, but only to a certain point because we shouldn't be glorifying these characters who commit these atrocious acts 
you know what I mean? Like, just because yeah. the actor who portrays him is funny doesn't negate from the fact that, you know, for example, he tried to marry a 14-year-old girl who was his uh, ward. Right. So, you know, <laughs> it's extremely uncomfortable and I'm not okay with any of it. But I love how occasionally Olaf will break out into song in the series. Love yeah, that. Sure. Love that so much. That's fair. So, you know, it's sort of a c- conflict within me. I don't want to like him yeah. because he's a dick, but he's so, he, like, he's portrayed so funny in the mm-hmm. series that it's hard to yeah. not like him. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <sighs> okay, now we get into some dark, deep shit. So, let's. Here we go. Yeah, okay, so this is going to be a bit political. There seems to be some sort of commentary going on about Olaf's disguise in this book because he mm-hmm. wears a turban and okay, first of all, the the makeup on Olaf in the TV series was problematic to me because mm-hmm. he was sort of in brown face. Yeah, it's a uh, it was big. Yeah. It was a big big mistake on the part of the series to portray him For in that sure, way. Yeah. Um because in the books he wears a turban, but we don't get any other commentary on, like, any particular makeup that he's wearing. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's a thing that made me really uncomfortable. Um, but so the the kids try to get him to take off the turban in front of the vice principal and Mr. Poe in order to prove that he's Count Olaf because the turban is hiding his unibrow, which apparently he just mm-hmm. refuses to tweeze. That's a whole, like, why can't he just tweeze it? Just Olaf. get it waxed. Right. Get it threaded. So do something. It's, like, very iconic in a bad way. So, anyway, okay, but, um, so, Mr. Poe tells the kids that it's not okay to be prejudiced against him based on his turban and his religion, which in itself is a good message, but... Yeah, a good lesson, but... but the way that Olaf appropriates the religion for his own ends is extremely mm-hmm. problematic, and it's a super weird moment in the text because the kids are justified in wanting him to take it off to reveal his disguise but the lesson that Poe's trying to teach the kids is that they should be respectful of other people's religion and customs and traditions Mm -hmm. and not ask them to do something that would make them uncomfortable like taking it off but the book is at the same time trying to teach people to be suspicious of people who are wearing turbans question mark yeah so so the book was published in 2000 or 2001 it was a year before 9-11 but okay we can't i mean there's clearly a distrust of like middle eastern cultures and religions and we can't mm-hmm. ignore it because it's very much of the time in which it was written i mean not to say that this could very also very clearly be written today uh, and it yeah, would be upsetting it's... but not so shocking which is so unfortunate mm-hmm. but uh, yeah it, it really it is. just read as like a really weird i kind of stepped out of the plot at this i wasn't as absorbed i was like okay i need to take a minute to think about this when i read it i was like there's something really problematic going on here and i can't i don't know yeah, it's like i honestly would have really liked this book if it honestly weren't for the turban i agree thing it just read as really like, weird and it sort of removed me from the moment because yeah it's first of all it's weird for mr poe to be the one teaching us a moral we're not we're, we've been taught to distrust everything he says because he's an idiot yeah so why is mm-hmm. he the one teaching us this really important lesson about respecting people's cultures and not asking them to remove a turban which is 
has so much religious and cultural significance. Mm-hmm. Why, like, what we've been taught to to not listen to what he has to say, and yet he's the one who's telling us to respect this. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, yeah. are we supposed to be listening to him in this case, or are we supposed to be saying, "No, no, no, take it off"? Because that's yeah, and the fact that problem. the kids end up being right exactly. Is the thing. That's that's yeah. yeah. It, it maybe not. I just didn't. Yeah, it was not good. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. So that was like the, again, yeah. we could talk a whole episode about this. So, yeah. I, I just had to bring it up because that was like the most no, uncomfortable definitely. part of this entire book for me was oh yeah that moment sure. yeah so mm-hmm. yeah okay um, um but moving on we had an interesting discussion earlier yeah. we have a bit of a I not disagreeing I feel like we have different viewpoints no but I I totally agree topic. with you I think it's just our points sort of build off of each other so basically yeah this book to me feels like the start of a turning point or like a new era in the series for me because the kids don't have a clear guardian they meet kids mm-hmm. their own age who have similar experiences they befriend them they learn about the whole sort of conspiracy plot thing the mystery thickens but they also get a little bit more information they learn about vfd or at least the acronym and also snicket is a tiny bit more in this one this is sort of the point mm-hmm. at which he also becomes more of a character because he's telling us a tiny bit more about himself through the process of telling us the story about the Baudelaire's. So it does Mm -hmm. seem like there's a bit of a shift that uh, starts picking up momentum in the next few books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think, like, I think both of us are right. Yeah. Like, I think there's multiple shifts in the series. Yeah, for sure. I have a different idea of where the The most important switches. Yeah. Yeah, Which uh, I totally agree. I'll get to this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, so let's move on to book six. We can get to my theory on where the shift is in the series. So book six, the Erzatz Elevator. Mr. Poe has been promoted to head of orphan affairs, and he assures the Baudelaire's that he is looking for their kidnapped friends, the Quagmire Triplets. The Baudelaire's are sent to live with Jerome and Esme Squalor, who live in the penthouse apartment on Dark Avenue. Esme, who is the sixth most important financial advisor in the city, is very concerned on what is in and what is out. Jerome, who welcomes the children warmly, uh, does what she says and doesn't like arguing with her. They meet the organizer of her inn auction, Gunther, who is Count Olaf in disguise. The Baudelaire's discover an ersatz elevator and climb down to find the quagmire triplets are there being held in a cage. They know of Olaf's plan to smuggle them in an object at the inn auction and to take them out of the country where it will be easier for him to steal the sapphires that they will inherit. The Baudelaire's attempt to save them, but return to find the quagmires are gone, and they are pushed back down the elevator by Esme, who is working with Count Olaf. Sunny uses her teeth to help them escape, and they find a secret passage that leads them back to their burnt-down house. They rush to the auction and unsuccessfully attempt to save the quagmires. Olaf's identity is revealed, as well as his alliance with Esme, but once again he escapes before he is captured. Jerome is both forced to give up the orphans, as he is not brave enough to help them, and the Baudelaire's once again are left wondering what is to become of them and of their friends. So you had a really great note in our shared doc, and it was <laughs> just the bourgeoisie question mark. So I, yeah, I knew I wanted to talk about it, and I just like 
was at a point where I've been looking at this document all yes. morning and I couldn't put the words out. So I was like, I'll deal with it later. Okay, so so let me say some things and you can jump off from there. Yes, there does okay. for sure seem to be a class commentary going on, which isn't the first time mm-hmm. or the last time it happens, but this one seems to yeah. be a bit more in your face. So it's definitely making fun of this like stupidly rich people and their stupidly rich trends, which by the way, oh, just yeah. right now feels extremely poignant because of like instagram era tiktok era we have influencers we have people like the kardashians Mm -hmm. there's so many trends coming and going that i just can't keep track and i've deleted all my medias because i genuinely don't understand what's going on anymore yeah (laughs) um anyways but this this was relevant uh when it came out and it's relevant now for sure but Mm -hmm. it it does seem to be a commentary on capitalism and how things are so disposable now and how we need to be constantly buying new things in order to be trendy or be relevant or be up to date. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah, Yeah, like even as you're saying trends that come and go so quickly, like on TikTok, someone was telling me that like, it's literally like planned, like the TikTok dances that are popular are like literally planned. They're like, oh, this week, this is going to be the popular dance that everyone will do. And, like, I even, I posted a TikTok with a trend on it, and, like, it got no views. I think it's because I posted it at the end, tail end of the trend. So either everyone was so sick of it, they heard the music, or were like, fuck, no, I don't want to watch this. Or they purposely, like, because I use that music, weren't promoting it and yep. putting it on other people's For You page. Because they're like, no, that trend's done now. It's not, it's out now. It's not in anymore. Exactly. Yeah. It's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And. <laughs> Okay, a few a few things about the 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 things that they find in or out that I found really weird mm-hmm. and interesting are they live on Dark Avenue because dark is in when the kids show up, mm-hmm. but then light is in like ten minutes after they get there. So do they change the name of the street to Light Avenue? Right. I mean, they never they always refer it to Dark Avenue. I know, so I but think like that just happens to be the joke. So that's a coincidence, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but it's fun because like there are some things that like are just a joke, like light is in yeah. and elevators are out, like things like that. Um, but then there's actual things that have real consequences. Yeah, exactly. Like they're like, oh, orphans, orphans are, are in, in. So we can adopt you, and the kids are left there thinking, like seeing them suddenly. Yeah. Switch what about when orphans when are light out? Is in. Yeah. Yeah, and so it really shows, like, the consequences some of these trends have on exactly. other people. Yeah, because all of a sudden it's trendy for people to be, like, name-dropping this or, like, supporting a particular cause, but then all of a sudden when mm-hmm. they're done with it, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, like, yeah, it's like the Black Lives Matter movement is still exactly. in It didn't leave just because it's not no, trending. No, it's in the not over, but people aren't talking about it as much. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Oh, my God. Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. But I mean, some of the some of the other things that are in and out are so ridiculous. Like salmon, cafe salmonella. I mean, oh my god! I have had so much salmon this week. Yes, please. Okay, please regale them with the salmon story. (laughs) So my dad, uh, my parents have a boat, and they went on a big boat trip before I came home to visit. Uh, And my dad caught this huge salmon, so we had um, all these like. Uh, someone like professionally they cleaned it out and chopped it up for them and so the other night they're like oh we'll make some of the salmon that dad caught and I was like that sounds great and uh, of course like with all five of us at home they've like forgotten how much food we all need because all five of us aren't home that often um I have two siblings I feel like I've mentioned that yeah. before um and so uh we made so much salmon so there's so much leftover salmon everyone's just like eat salmon please every it feels like every meal I've had salmon. And then we just had sushi. Yeah, And of did. course I ordered the salmon combo because I'm insane. So I've had a lot of salmon. Welcome drinks. to the west coast of BC. 
I'm truly home. <laughs> you're home. You're never leaving. No. Okay. This this is also an aside, but you, you talking about your two siblings made me realize I think we do need to comment on, yes, we are both middle siblings and we definitely give off middle sibling energy. Absolutely. <laughs> I would say you're a more oldest sibling than I am, but you definitely have a lot of. I dabble. I dabble. Sibling. Yeah, you dabble. Yeah, but but I'm like textbook middle sibling. Yeah, yeah. It's very good. Okay, that's very funny. Okay, yes. Back to the book. So this is also the first book where there's a really rich and just like generally powerful woman, like a powerful female figure, calling the shots. Right. And it's so mm-hmm. unfortunate to me that she's a villain. Why couldn't she have been powerful and chill? Lucy Punch, that's her name. Thank you. Ah, that's a good name. Anyway, okay. But like, I think maybe we've talked about this before, but the fact that if there's like a female protagonist at all, there also therefore needs to be a female villain is such a damaging trope. And it's so frustrating. Like, why can't women just defeat the patriarchy? Why can't that be the moral of the story? Why does there have to also be a female villain for there to be female empowerment within the story? Why do women have to defeat other women to feel valid? You know? Yeah. But yeah, I go even. Yeah. It is unfortunate that we finally have like a woman in power who's like in a what's traditionally like viewed as a man, man's job, yes. like a financial yeah. advisor, yeah. and and she's evil. Yes. Why does she have to be evil? Yeah, it's. But I guess women can be evil too. Yeah. Women can be good. Men can be good. Women can be evil. Yep. Anyone can be good or evil. Yeah, but I mean, there are so few representations of female adults in the series in general because all of the women mm-hmm. are tragically dead which is also a trope point, you know yeah. is that the woman can be a perfect romantic figure so long as she's dead and for for this is getting ahead of us but like kit snicket has to die in order to be the perfect female you know That's what i mean because point. she yeah. has flaws up until she dies and then once she dies she's able to sort of be a legend yeah and her flaws don't matter anymore because she was a perfect female and who who died after mm-hmm. she had her baby so she served her purpose to society in having a child and now she's allowed to die because she's irrelevant oh, right and now she's yeah. able to be this sort of mythical figure anyway yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other can of worms that's like it makes me so angry but uh, <laughs> okay yep. okay okay changing topics moving on to the quagmires yep. because <laughs> We got to talk about this. So we didn't talk mm-hmm. about this uh, with the last book, but we are introduced to the Quagmires in the Austere Academy. And we see the mm-hmm. kids' relationships, like the triplets hanging out with the Baudelaire's. It's really great. But now Violet, Klaus, and Sunny aren't just responsible for saving themselves. They are also responsible for saving the triplets. And they're responsible mm-hmm. for their lives. They become, one might say, volunteers in the activity of trying to deal with Olaf's mm-hmm. bullshit head-on and saving these kids. So, again, we're seeing them sort of becoming more adults, being responsible not just for themselves, but for others, and also thinking not just about themselves, but about others. And it's an interesting shift. One more thing about the Quagmires. Okay, we have Isadora and we have Duncan. Beautiful names. Quigley? Yes. Quigley yes. Quagmire. <laughs> Isadora Duncan, normal names, and then Quigley, Quigley. and like Quigley itself is an interesting name, but then you add the last name, Quigley Quagmire. I cannot. Like, <laughs> why would you do that to your child? Oh my god. I literally don't understand. Yeah. That was one of those okay, times take- the, that the author was just like, no, 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 no. I got this one. No. Quigley, and he types it out and just like laughs. Is that a shot? Dumb names. <laughs> we I'm out of liquor. 
That's fair. Yeah, we only. I mean, we could run and get another shot. But do we need? I think. I think we need to. Yeah, it's so fine. Okay. okay. Oh. <laughs> I mean, should, uh, we probably should move on to the last book okay. of this episode. <laughs> book seven: The Vile Village. Mr. Poe offers the children to join a program where they would live in a small village, and the village as a whole would raise them. They agree only when they see that the village is called VFD, the same initials that the Quagmires called out to them. They arrive to find a very dull, restrictive, and grumpy town covered in crows where they are to complete everyone's chores and have many strict rules to follow. They stay with the town handyman Hector, who explains that VFD stands for Village of Foul Devotees. The orphans keep finding couplets clearly written by Isadora and try to decipher them to see what they mean. A man named Jacques is mistakenly captured as Count Olaf, and he's murdered the night before the Baudelaire's can rescue him. Detective Dupin, another of Count Olaf's disguises, blames the murder on the Baudelaire's, and they are to be burned at the stake. The Baudelaire's break out of jail and decode Isidore's message to free the Quagmires. The Quagmires escape on the self-sustained hot air balloon that Hector had been building illegally, but there is not enough time for the Baudelaire's to get on. The Quagmires try to give the information that they know about VFD to the Baudelaire's, but all the Baudelaire's hear is the word volunteer, and Esme destroys their notebook with a harpoon gun, also injuring a crow, another illegal act in the town. While Esme and Olaf escape, the townspeople tend to the crow. Sunny takes her first steps, and they leave the village on foot. Can we just address how many times a harpoon gun appears in this story? It's yeah. Like, <laughs> so good. It's very funny. It's Of all guns, it's a harpoon gun. It's a harpoon gun, and it's also very, like, Moby Dick-esque. There's, like, yeah. this guy really has a thing for Melville in, a no- in an uncomfortable way. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that's his favorite book. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't either. It's very convoluted and philosophical, so it sort of makes sense. Yeah. All right. I uh, so something I wanted to talk about. I so the Baudelaire's find themselves in a very restrictive environment throughout the series. So like we've already talked about Aunt Josephine, who's terrified in everything and essentially doesn't let them do anything. Uh, and then the mill forces them to work all day. The academy has very strict rules uh, to follow. I'd go as far to say austere. Ooh, <laughs> maybe. Um, and the village also has many rules to follow, many of them like contradicting themselves. And eventually they find themselves on the island later on in the series that has also has very strict rules mm-hmm. to keep the peace. And like all these rules are there to attempt to keep order and peace. But like, do they cause more harm than good? Like, are too many rules a bad thing? And am I just becoming an anarchist? Yes, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> this is what I've discovered. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, the moral of this book seems to be that laws aren't always logical or fair. And it's mm-hmm. such an important lesson to teach kids, especially kids who grew up rich like the Baudelaire's, that the law mm-hmm. is not always just and that they also need to fight to change it. It is like their responsibility, even if the law is not affecting yeah. them. If it's, effect- if, if it's negatively affecting somebody else, they also need to stand up for it. Yeah, it's like if the law is no longer long, no longer serving the good of society, like it's time to change it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a really yeah. valuable lesson to be teaching kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So as we brought up earlier, you viewed the uh, switch of the series around book five with the academy. I view the switch in the series here, mm-hmm. it, particularly the moment Sunny takes her first step. Yeah. So like, I because this is the book we really get the first sign that the children are growing up. 
and as we go along with the series because prior to the format is sort of like monster of the day-esque where like there's no indication of time progressing much beyond the sequence of events and like it could very easily turn into something like dire wimpy kid where they stay the same age throughout the series and just like are kind of in this weird purgatory where all these yeah. bad things keep happening it's never really specific how old they are and like yeah. how much time has passed um but like that all changes like the moment uh when they're in jail yeah. like they celebrate class's uh 13th birthday and the very end of the novel sunny takes her first steps and they continue to grow like sunny's vocabulary begins to evolve and she's even speaking full sentences by book 10 and we celebrate violet's 15th birthday in book 11 and uh like a mar i wrote the word mar mark (laughs) (laughs) um and so i think like this moment marking when they are growing yeah is like marks the moment the series begins to change and like i want to get more into next episode especially and that's why i put the split here especially because i felt like the first seven books follow the same format yes yeah mr poe drops them off uh they meet their new guardian count olaf arrives in disguise no one believes them. They have to figure it out. Count Olaf has discovered. He runs away. And they're sent to a new garden. Yeah. And it follows that. But this is the first moment. The moment Sunny takes her first steps, they walk away from the situation Yes, together. they do. Yep. And then the next book is the first time they show up at a situation on their own accord. Mr. Yeah. Poe does not drop them off. So we're immediately breaking that format. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think this is where the change is in the series. Yeah. I think we really do start to see them grow up in this book Mm -hmm. and up until this point we're left to assume that theoretically all of these crazy things have taken place within one year because they're still described Mm -hmm. as the same age they were in the first book and then this is the first confirmed moment where we realize that time has passed because klaus celebrates his 13th birthday in jail and each of them start to feel more sure of themselves they also start to feel and act more adult but Mm -hmm. like okay klaus you're still 13 calm down you sweet little baby boy but i mean i do remember reading my diary from when i was about 14 from when i was turning 14 and i said the words and i quote i don't feel like i'm turning 14 i feel like i'm turning 40 (laughs) iconic oh my better moments i would say i love that so much (laughs) I saw that years later and just cried laughing. Oh my god. Um, I did want to say, though, I really like that, um, like, for me, how I view the switch of the series yeah. is, like, a very personal moment in their lives. Yeah. Because, like, I feel like often that switch of the series is a big moment. Like, Harry Potter, for example, the big moment where the series changes is when Cedric dies. Yes. Like, that's such a huge yes. moment. That's yeah. the first time we see someone that's good and, like, a child die. Yes. Whereas this one, it's such a personal moment in their lives. Like, in the grand scheme of the things in this story, like Sunny taking your first steps isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. But like in your life, like a baby's first steps are such a big, is such a big milestone. And I really like that it was such a personal moment for them that marked the change of the series. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And it's, the the tone does change because they genuinely run away. Like they're no longer mm-hmm. trusting the authority figures that they reluctantly or begrudgingly trusted before they don't wait for mr poe to show up this time they just Mm -hmm. straight up run off into the hinterlands and decide that it's better to fend for themselves just the three of them in the wilderness than to trust the authority figures that have fucked them over so many times and that is such a bold move 
but it's also them sort of coming to terms with the situation they're in and learning so much from all of the experiences that they have had and also them growing up and becoming more reliant on and trusting each other because mm-hmm. they have gone from a family of five to a family of three and they're they're all of a sudden very much able to fully rely on each other and they sort of feel almost like these parental rules for each other and i mean especially violet and close with sunny mm-hmm, yeah. but it is interesting that the transition is through throughout the series the transition is them going from kids to adults but also them going from children to parents because they're yeah, sort of yeah they go from siblings to parents for sunny and then back to siblings again as she gets older but mm-hmm. also spoiler alert at the end they become the adoptive parents of kit snicket's child so then yeah. it sort of goes full circle because then they become the parents with of the orphan and have to choose mm-hmm whether to like divulge information, how to protect them. So this is sort of the moment where we start to see them coming into that, coming into yeah, their own and becoming the people who end up taking on that responsibility later on. Yeah, that's why I thought this was like a good place to split the episodes. Yeah, definitely. Um, also, yeah. we're running um, out of time anyway. <laughs> also, yeah, this is a long episode. A lot um, long. Sorry, but not no, sorry. No, not sorry. <laughs> it's a yeah. lot you signed up for um, it right uh any last thoughts before we sign off for today i mean my only thought at this point is just it gets more batshit crazy from here on out like it just gets worse and more crazy so buckle in dear listener as we take you on an absolutely wild journey in the next episode yeah i also realized we only did two shots today i we could have fit in a third one i think we didn't do it that is shocking but that's okay but my drink was very strong that's fair we did make very though yeah our drinks were both like a shot and a half so and with very little tonic in it yes (laughs) i join us in our next episode where we will review the rest of the books and the series of unfortunate events this has been books before liquor never been sicker thanks for tuning in check us out on instagram and facebook at books before liquor and twitter at books bl podcast and check us out on our website at booksbeforeliquorneverbeensicker.ca or email us at booksbeforeliquor at gmail.com to scream at us about great books or send us recommendations or whatever. We love to hear from you. And you can also support us by visiting patreon.com slash booksbeforeliquorneverbeensicker. And now, go drink a big glass of water.